In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's a bit of uh, motherly wisdom that some of you might have received along the way. A little parental wisdom, if you even want to broaden it that way. And uh, it comes down to this. When it, re- when it comes down to long-term relationships, you might have heard this from a mother or a father or a caregiver or a grandmother. Um, how a man treats his mother is a big indicator about how he'll treat a wife. Do I get an amen? <laughs> There's a wonderful essay in the resource doc this week from uh, The Cut magazine that tells a very poignant testimony to that end. Uh, but in that moment, um, you don't believe it at the moment, but then you, you, you live a little and you discover that it's true, that, uh, that how a, a man is with his mother is how a man might be with a wife. It's a pretty strong indicator. And, and that's also true of how a woman is with her mother. It's, it's just that way. And you can't quite put your finger on why, but you know there's something to it. We have been listening to various places in Scripture about the Holy Spirit. And we're doing so uh, not because we're bored or because we needed to fill time, but as I said in the very first week, it's really an act of repentance. It's an attempt to correct an imbalance. Because if you stick around here or the Western modern church for very long, you might start to believe that following Jesus is simply a matter of having the right ideas and following through in the right actions. That's all about facts and follow-through. Their part, they are not the whole. There is something else involved. There's someone else involved. It's the Holy Spirit. And we want to reckon with the Holy Spirit as best we can to live as if we believe that Spirit is present to us, among us, within us, and in ways we could never quite dream or predict. We want to consider the Holy Spirit. And We've been following that motherly wisdom even in our consideration of the Holy Spirit already. Because we've been considering how the Holy Spirit is to creation, how the Holy Spirit is to the conviction of sinners. Last week we considered how the Holy Spirit is to the inspiration of Scripture. This morning, we're going to pivot to the life of Jesus. Not because we're done with the Old Testament, but we want to believe that our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is is very much involved in who the Holy Spirit is to Jesus. That you learn a lot about the Holy Spirit from how the Holy Spirit is to Jesus. And not only to Jesus, but to his mother. To his mother Mary. Who the Spirit is to them is a great insight and a great window in who the Spirit is to the church. And we want to flesh that out. Ha <laughs> ha. We want to consider who the Spirit is to Mary, who the Spirit is to Jesus, and in light of who the Spirit is to Mary and to Jesus, who the Spirit is to you, who the Spirit is to the church. So we're going to listen to a text, a couple texts from Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll see if by the end we've learned a little bit more about how we to think of the Spirit both in and through our lives. I wonder if you might stand from Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled 
at the scene and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, "Uh, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who, called, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then, skipping down to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to him, Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, And was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Okay, I know. A Christmas text, it's May. Really? Have we not done? Just look. I know, I know. But I, I also know... Uh, you're modern Western people, okay? The idea of an angelic appearance announcing astonishing acts, that was a little alliteration, did you catch it? Angelic appearances announcing astonishing acts, uh, not, thank you, not as much experience with that. Now, some of you may, uh, I don't know. I'm not ruling it out. I've had a couple moments going, I wonder what that was. Maybe you too. But on the whole, I would dare say, few of us could speak to the kind of experience that um, Mary has had here. And whenever we talk about this moment that came down through uh, church tradition to be known as the Annunciation, we love to throw up the the picture that I usually appoint to from Henry Ossawa Tanner, the Annunciation. And we stare at it and we imagine as he 
did or thought to? What would it have been like? What was she thinking? What would they have seen? How did she respond? All that stuff, hair on end, uh-huh. There's the moment. And we hear that, but we don't have much experience with that. And so what do we do? This is from the Gospel of Luke. We don't know a lot about Luke. We know he wrote both the Gospel according to Luke and the, the Acts of the Apostles. We know that in the first chapter, the very first introduction to the Gospel of Luke, he's writing to a doctor whose name is Theophilus, and he's really explicit about why he's writing. To my beloved Theophilus, I thought I would compile everything I knew about him so that you might have confidence in what you've been taught. Now, Theophilus is a doctor. I don't know if he's had a lot of experience with experiencing angels, but somehow Luke thinks that in telling this part that that's going to inspire confidence in Theophilus. Maybe it did. For you, ah, what do I do with that? Look, before we go any further and we consider the claims of the moment, let me just remind you, as I am want and typical to do, something that C.S. Lewis said. Uh, when this happened, uh, what was Joseph's first response when his wife says, I'm, I'm going to have a baby? Um, Joseph's first response was not, Hooray! Congratulations! This is wonderful! It's of God! It's No. Oh, so this happened. Okay, so much for that marriage. Let's, we'll end this quietly. We'll send back all the registry gifts and we'll just call it good. No. The angelic announcement of astonishing acts in Joseph's mind was like, yeah, probably not. So before everybody just sort of jumps to the conclusion, well, that's just what they believed back then. Well, Joseph didn't and he was close. So just consider that little mindset that is also at work in the first century as much as it's in work in the 21st century. And put away, to borrow Lewis's other phrase, your chronological snobbery for a moment, and just consider the moment as it is stated. Take it on its own terms. What happens? What's going on here? This isn't normal. It's not common. And it is kind of funny. Okay, Here's Mary. She's very young. She's engaged to be married, and all of a sudden, here comes this messenger. Angel means messenger. And that angel has a message, and it's kind of funny because it says, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, by the way, uh, Gabriel Samwise Kohlmeier was born over the weekend. We give thanks for that. As was Sage Evelyn, the grandchild of the, of the Ledfords. As was Oliver Creesman, now the grandchild of Tony and, and Brad Owen. Good Lord. All sorts of new mothers and fathers and grandparents. Yes, we give thanks. But in this moment, this Gabriel, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And it, it says in verse 29, but she was troubled, greatly troubled at the moment, trying to discern what this was about. I love it. Greatly troubled. Really? You were greatly troubled? You mean this doesn't happen every week? In the moment... She's greatly troubled, trying to figure out, not even sure, maybe, is this a message of judgment? Should I be afraid of what's going on? No, no, be, don't, don't be afraid. And that messenger is there to say, you're going to have a baby. And, you know, sorry to ruin the surprise for you, it's going to be a boy. Sorry, I know, I, what a party pooper, right? You're not even going to let me wait nine months. It's going to be a boy, and this baby boy is going to be, let's just say, something else. Like no boy, like no child you've ever met before. And, you know, mothers believe that whenever they get pregnant. Oh, yeah, it's going to be the best thing ever. Right. Let me, 
let me kind of communicate to you maybe what it might have felt like in a very pedestrian way. Look, um, if any of you have seen Air, it's the movie about how Nike rescued itself from uh, irrelevance to come up with the very first shoe for Michael Jordan and how they had to convince him to take him away from Adidas to go and sign with Nike. Here's a moment when the vice president of development drives all the way to Wilmington, North Carolina to meet with Michael Jordan's mom to kind of put it in stark terms. Mr. Vaccaro, now you do understand that Michael's intention is to sign with Adidas with Converse as a second option. I do. And with respect, I think that's a mistake. Um, I, I'll make a bet with you. I'll, I'll tell you exactly how those meetings are going to go. And if I'm wrong, then, then don't take a meeting with Mikey. But if I'm right, please consider that, that you and Michael come out. Why should I ask you? Ask me why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Why are you in Wilmington, North Carolina? Because I believe in your son. I believe he's different. And I believe you might be the only person on earth who knows it. Here's my analogy. Matt Damon is the angelic messenger. <laughs> telling Mary, I got to tell you something. This boy... He's different, and you're the first person I'm going to tell, and nobody else is going to believe you, not even your husband. He's going to be different, and you need to know that, and you need to be ready for what's coming, insofar as you're able, which is not much. This messenger has come to tell Mary that there is something at work here. Now, back up a little bit. Remember, this moment is in the context of Mary's much older friend, Elizabeth, also pregnant. Highly unlikely she'd get pregnant, given her age. And she is pregnant. And John, it says, John the Baptist, who we later know him as, it says, John would be great in the sight of the Lord. Meaning, he would be esteemed by God. And that's what made him great. But when you heard the messenger announce to Mary that your son will be great... It's just grateful stop. He will be great, not necessarily because he's going to be esteemed. He's just great in himself. You don't need any more qualifiers. Who he is, is that he is great. Full stop. Why? Because he will be the son of the Most High. In Hebraic idiom, because you were so concerned about speaking of the Lord and not defiling his name, you would sometimes use words to re reflect who God is by saying, Son of the Most High. He will be the one to sit on the throne of David. He will be the one who will be before all things. The promise that was made to King David back in 2 Samuel 7 is that your, that your name will not depart from your throne. Period. And then if you read past 2 Samuel 12, you know that dynasty did not last. That kingdom did not last. It was replaced. It was vanquished. And so you thought, well, that was a promise that came to an end. Well, now we hear that that throne actually did not come to an end. And in fact, when Jesus assumes that throne, that kingdom will in fact have no end. The promise is recovered. He's different. He's not like other boys. Something's going to happen here. Not in an end. Young mothers... 
when they see their child, they think, this will be the greatest, this, this, this thing's going to make a difference, right? Usually because they're still, you know, the epidural is still in play. <laughs> and then time passes, and they're like, he's great, I love him. The message that this is a child that is unlike others because he is the son of the Most High and his kingdom, whatever that means, will have no end. Now, okay, we said that this whole sermon series is all about the Holy Spirit. What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit at all? Well, allow me to let Mary's question get us to that focusing point. She is told that this is going to happen, and in so many words, Mary says, um, about that, I've, Joe, we've never, you know, we, huh, right? And that's where verse 35 kicks in. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is in play here. In some mystical fashion that no one can ever try to figure out, it's not important that you try to figure it out. That's okay. There's not much here. But that word come upon you and overshadow you, that's very Old Testament language. To come upon you was like the Lord, when you, when you read in the book of Judges about the, the, whole, the spirit of the Lord rushing upon someone, it is to have an influence upon them such that the, the spirit of God works in and through them for his own purposes. That's what it means to come upon you there. And the word there for overshadow is again, got its roots in the Old Testament, speaking of the, the spirit of the Lord, the very presence of God, overshadowing the tabernacle and filling the tabernacle with his glory. Back in Genesis 1-2, if you can remember that far back, we heard the first thing about the Spirit. The Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. It's the same word to speak of in Deuteronomy 32 about an eagle hovering over Israel that that people might take refuge in him, fluttering. He comes upon you, he overshadows you, he brings to fruition what has been promised to her. As the Spirit was involved in creation, as the Spirit was involved in the inspiration of the text, so the Spirit here is to Mary. What a messenger has disclosed to her, the Spirit is now going to bring to reality. Mary is the one upon whom the Spirit acts to bring into human form one who is uniquely suited to lead and one who is uniquely related to God. That's how the Spirit is involved. And Mary, she's the very first person to be incorporated into the storyline of Jesus. She has that honor. And the Holy Spirit is there to bring to fruition what she has been told. So, what does that mean for you? It's a reasonable question. And I will answer it as soon as I also explain who is the Spirit to Jesus in this passage. Now, it's more implicit than explicit. But I think you will find that what we have here, it's already answered in the sense, right? Jesus is here. It's what we call the incarnation. God made flesh. He is from God, and as in creation, so also in the incarnation, the Spirit is involved in bringing him to reality in the flesh. And Luke doesn't even get there here in Luke chapter 2. We're not even meant to believe that he might be divine. We just know that he's special. But the Spirit's participation in the life of Jesus does not end with simply bringing into human form he who is God. 
that that participation only begins. And while it's not explicit, it's pretty clear. I reach back here to Isaiah chapter 11, which reads something like this in the first three verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. If you're a rabbinical scholar of the day, you're wondering, who's that? Will that one please show up soon? And the further and further away they got from that moment that Isaiah spoke of, the more and more they became convinced that there was one still to come upon for whom that would be true. And I think you sense in what you hear here in Luke chapter 2 that a good case could be made that what we hear from here in Isaiah is exactly what we have in Jesus. But before we get him walking about, doing his thing, we see him as a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old! Mom and dad pack him up, saying, we're going to Jerusalem, honey. It's that time of year. Time for the feast. And so they, with their friends and acquaintances and family members, they load up the RV, and they go on the caravan, and here they go to Jerusalem. They have the feast, and then it's time to go home. And as you heard, Jesus decided for himself, I think I'll stick around. But he didn't tell mom and dad. And so they said, oh, ooh, rookie mistake, right? Um, on whose part? We'll see. Anyway, they set out. And they don't see him, they think, oh, he's out playing cornhole with the friends, must be doing that thing on the back of the wagon, I don't know. And then they go, wait a minute, where is he? Where, where is, have you seen him? I, I didn't see him, he's back. So they, it says they returned to Jerusalem. I love the, the euphemism there, they returned. Yeah, you returned, sure you did. They rushed back to Jerusalem, looking everywhere. You seen this 12-year-old about gay high, worrying about, you know, bathrobe, that kind of thing, sandals? You know, starting to get a little peach fuzz. That guy, 12-year-old. And then they think, where have we not been? I know, temple. Right, temple, 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 temple. There he is. And there's sort of a parental moment that we are privileged to be a witness to. And what do they see him doing? Sipping a little whey with the rabbis. I had to look that one up. Walking, sitting, inquiring, curious, learning, but also offering answers to some of their questions that it says that the rabbis are marveling. This is the wonder years for Jesus, for them. And Mary and Joseph are also marveled. And they see him. And mom talks first. Why did you do this to us? Your father and I have been searching for you. Right? What are you doing? And, and then Jesus asks this question, why were you looking for me? And if we'd been there, we're like, Jesus, man, dude, sh they're good. don't know, right? Yeah, impertinent, man, impertinent. But look, don't misunderstand his question. He's not being this stoic, um, dispassionate, uh, unsympathetic moment. The, 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 the key to interpreting that question is what his, his next question is. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Not, why do you care? That's not his question. But why did you end up searching in a whole bunch of other places? Why didn't you, think you, why didn't you know I would be here? Why didn't you know I had to be here? 
and she doesn't get it. And the episode is, is all bookended by the fact that it speaks of Jesus as one who is growing in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and with man. And in that moment, I would argue, given what we heard from Isaiah, that the Holy Spirit is what? Not only responsible for him becoming in human form, but also for his maturing. His maturing into the understanding of who he is and what he is out to be. And that spirit is not only assisting in the maturation of Jesus, it is also in the understanding and the maturation of his mother. I mean, there's part of us that goes, wait a minute, Mary, that part about the Annunciation, you heard that part, right? Why are you, like, weirded out by the fact that he is found here in the temple? Because maybe it's been 12 years since she ever thought about that moment. Maybe she's beginning to finally connect some dots here that what I was told then Maybe this is the first instance in which I have, oh, oh. She doesn't get it, but it does say she, she treasured these moments, and they, she treasured them in her heart, meaning she noted them, she reflected upon them, she considered them, she tried to understand them, even if it, all she could do at the moment was wrestle with them. The Holy Spirit in that moment is out to mature both in him and in her a sense of him, his identity, and his purpose. For her to treasure it in that way is to try to reckon with something that is beyond her. That that which she had heard from an angel was suddenly becoming real and slowly becoming a belief. And that spirit the one who had brought to reality that which she'd been told, is now trying to work something into her that is of an even more lasting quality. That's who the Spirit is to Mary. That's who the Spirit is to Jesus. So thank you for sitting patiently. What then is the Spirit unto the church? Before I answer that question, let's, let's not miss this fact. And, um, kids, uh, this is a borrowed thought. If you ever wonder if Jesus gets you, you need to remember that there was a moment when his parents did not understand him. He knows exactly what it feels like to have parents who mean well, who love well, but are like, what? I don't, what are you, these kids these days? He, his parents didn't get him. But it was not an a reason or an excuse for him to stop listening and learning that they might have something for him. He gets you when you feel like, they don't get me. He knows that experience. Parents, moms, how many times do we have to be reminded that these kids are ours at best provisionally? Uh, I read a poem this morning at 6 a.m. and I lost it. It was a sight. It's by uh, C. Day Lewis. He's the father of Daniel Day Lewis, the actor. And it was a poem that C. Day Lewis actually wrote to his oldest son named Sean. And uh, the name of the poem is, um, it has no title. But I will read you an excerpt from it. It's written to his son. I've had worse partings, 
but none that so gnaws at my mind still. Perhaps it is roughly saying what God alone could perfectly show. How selfhood begins with the walking away, and love is proved in the letting go. Mary is beginning to realize love is proved in the letting go. He needs to be in that temple. He needs to be with his heavenly father. You, you want him in that temple, Mary. You need him in that temple. Because what he will do as a consequence of his wisdom and understanding and his love for his heavenly father is what will be of great help to us all and to her. What is the spirit to us in light of what the spirit is to Mary and to Jesus? By the spirit, God takes human form. By the spirit, God is birthing Jesus into the world. What's the analogy I'd like to draw for you? By the Spirit, ideas take the form of belief. But faith is birthed into the heart by the Spirit. I want to share with you a brief excerpt from an interview with a historian. Her name is Molly Worthen. She's a historian at UNC Chapel Hill. Ten years ago, she wrote a book called The Apostles of Reason, which was her summary analysis of that segment of the church known as evangelicalism and how they struggled to kind of ever come to a consensus about what scripture is teaching. And it was just one big historical attempt. And this was before she's a Christian. And, and she's a historian, and she'd struggled with the idea of Jesus. She, she had a certain, she was compelled by his story and, and longed for it to be true, but it just wasn't for her. And then Within the last year, something's changed. And I, I would like you to hear just her own account of that change. And then I'll qualify. This is Molly Worthen. And I should say, too, that the, the crucial intervention that, that J.D. made for me intellectually, that made it possible for me to even have this process, was to help me see that I had in my previous efforts, half-baked as they were, to investigate Christianity, I had been, I allowed myself to be overwhelmed by things that weren't the central thing. So if you're mm. looking at converting to Christianity from the outside as a fully formed adult, you're not doing it in the context of a family, it's a lot to take at once, right? So there's all the Jesus stuff, but there's lots of crazy stuff in the Bible. There's all the end times, yeah. you know, prophecies, yeah. heaven and hell, you know, the, the sexual ethic that is so at odds with everything our current culture says, it's, it's so much at once. It is overwhelming. And you might begin to make baby steps on one point, but then you're like, oh, man, but all that other stuff is so bananas. How I can't do this. I'm paralyzed. What J.D. helped me see was that it, it stands or falls on the resurrection. And I could, I could agree to struggle with all the other questions. Like, they're important for sure but they're not the main thing. I could agree to struggle with them and that it's all about Romans 10, 9, right? I mean, it's all about confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that he rose from the dead. And I could, and I could do that. 
because I'm, I'm a historian and it turns out, and here again, I feel so, I mean, I guess every conversion is a series of epiphanies. Once you've had the epiphany, you're like, how could I have ever been so dumb, right? So this is in that category. I mean, here I am, a historian of Christianity, like certainly not a first century specialist, but yeah, a historian of Christianity. And I had always conceived of myself as unusually open to the claims of Christianity, sincerely open. But I only realized in this process last summer that I really had not been, and that I, I had never, there were all these resources for seriously investigating the, the claims of this religion, which is unique in that it, it makes this singular historical claim, and that that is everything. And there are the tools available to really engage with it and make up your mind about it. And I had never done that. And I felt kind of ashamed of myself. And, and so, you know, I never, I, over those months, I was, I was praying for some sort of, you know, warm and fuzzy mystical intervention, and it didn't happen. I just got to the point in August where I thought, well, gosh, if I am a consistent pragmatist, I have to admit that I have gotten over that line of uh, the resurrection being the best explanation for the historical evidence we have. And if that's true, I have to change my working hypothesis of the universe. I'm talking about that clip with Craig yesterday, and you can hear that and, and maybe be led to the belief that um, belief in Jesus is simply about uh, taking a bunch of thoughts and a bunch of data and sort of sifting it through and doing your own little analytical uh, process and then, shing, faith. It's not. And if you were to hear more, which I don't have time to share with you, you would hear in her a sense of longing, a desire to understand, to grapple, but also to rest. And I would argue just what you heard there in just those three minutes is just sort of the, 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 the final sort of phase between the sense of longing to the point in which she had to change her hypothesis, her working hypothesis for the universe. What the Spirit does in bringing Jesus into human form into the world is the same or similar work that the Spirit is doing to bring and birth faith in the human heart. And that Spirit will use any number of means by which to do so. Certainly the Word, certainly the church, certainly friendship. She speaks of J.D., a pastor over in Raleigh. She'll... The Spirit also uses preaching sometimes. Sometimes. And that's why if you are here and you wonder, how does the Spirit work in you? And if, that, if you're on the other side of the line, I'm encouraging you to consider that the, the best reason and by the Spirit's power to believe that actually He was risen from the dead. And if you haven't looked behind you to say, I guess I'm asked past that line, then you should tell somebody. And in the words of Jesus, repent and be baptized. Yeah, that's what the Spirit does. To bring us to a point where it's like, I, I got to change my working hypothesis for the universe. I think it's a legit claim, even though I've never seen one before. That's one way the Spirit works. And where it starts, though, and where it goes from there, is that the Spirit is involved in your maturing. You are not simply brought to the point where we're like, I believe in the resurrection, because that's like a starting point. If that's true, do you know in how many places that has implications? Every place. 
everything you're worried about this morning, everything that you're grinding your teeth about this morning, everything that you're lamenting this morning, the last three things that brought tears to your eyes for what you have no control over, what you can't do and what you can't change, the resurrection has implications for you how you think about those things and how you respond. The Spirit is involved in birthing faith. The Spirit is also involved in moving in us in a way that we are different as a consequence, that we learn to grow in favor and in stature and in wisdom with the Lord. And in what, what form does that maturing take? One is to believe yourself to be in the presence of a God who is not only Lord, but who is a father. A father whose love is comparable to and greater than the love of a mother. We mature in faith not only when we believe the resurrection to be credible, but when we believe that the Lord is in fact a father who our mothers first told us about maybe. And what form does that then take? You hear, you believe, you rest in a favor of God. Four times in the passage you heard the word favor. It's the word charis. It's also translated as the grace of God. You mature when you believe the Lord's love is like this for you. Never changing. No matter how poorly or well you respond in love to him, this is his love for you. Because he's a good father like that. And when that becomes true, when that starts to be something that you rest in, it also makes you responsive to his prompting. And here's where I'll end. If we believe the Holy Spirit is as he is portrayed, then he is the one to bring to our attention what good we might want to do or need to do. In both Mary's story and Jesus' story, it's maybe easy to miss, but at the end of every description of both episodes, what does it say? Mary said unto the Lord, Behold, I am your servant. I will act according to your will. May it be to me as you have said. And Jesus, even after the fracas with mom and dad there at the temple, it says he was submissive to his parents. There is a sense in which, as we mature, we become responsive and do what we must in the moment that we are find ourselves in. I don't know what you need to do next. I don't know if you need to confess a sin. I don't know if you need to start a conversation. I don't know if you need to repent of something and set it aside. I don't know if you need to work reconciliation with somebody with whom you are estranged. I don't know what that is. The Lord does. And if the Spirit is as he is portrayed, then he is the one to prompt us to that, to that next right, timely, necessary thing. Before we sing and before I pray, I'll invite you to be quiet, which might be the most disturbing thing I could ask you to do. But if the Spirit is the Spirit, perhaps it would be appropriate to try to quiet ourselves in order to hear above the din, above all the good information 
that is still just that information. Beloved, this is the Spirit, the one who means to birth in us belief and mature that belief in us in all things, even in maturing us to do the next right thing on the basis of his prompting. So let's be quiet, and then I'll pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us in the favor of your Son, who leads us to a place of repentance, or of praise, or of change, not in order to find his love, but to rest in a love that is always present and true. Father, I pray that you would invite those to faith in the resurrection and would do so in ways that are particularly pedestrian, it would seem, but are no less a consequence of your activity than anything else that they have done to consider it. And I pray that you would help us to rest and believe in what you've done so that we might not be afraid or resistant to what you call us to in the moment. And now, Father, help us to love one another because you have loved us first. In the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, we pray. Amen.